Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The, so if you, know, if you read about the psychology of color, you learn that studies show that seeing the color yellow actually triggers your body to feel hunger and um, the, the combination of yellow and red speaks to the foods that are found in, in fast food. And so it's, it's not just arbitrary, you know, and it's not just marketing and advertising. It's they're, they're, the psychology behind it is that you're trying to sell a product. You're trying to make people hungry with your advertising and you want them to, to buy the product. You're going to use the color that makes people feel hungry, obviously. And so that's why, you know, when you're driving down the street and you see the yellow arches, that, that, that's, that's why it's there. That's why it's yellow. And of course, then it, it goes even deeper than that, that like the fries are actually yellow. And at one point there was coloring added to make them more yellow and all these things. Right. And the point of it is of course, to drive you to buy the food and eat it. But it's interesting to know that it wasn't just like a couple of designers thinking that yellow was cool. There's some science behind it. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Jason, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out about your work by way of your publicist who sent me your book, Live Life Colorfully, um, which I absolutely loved because as I was saying before we hit record here, it was kind of like a combination of a coffee table book with, you know, insightful psychology on, you know, how color adds to our lives. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking what might seem like a very odd question. And that is, do you have siblings? If so, what birth order were you and uh, what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Okay. Well, I mean, that's, I love that question. I am one of seven and I am number two. <laughs> I'm so glad I asked that question then. <laughs> right. Oh, it's such a good question for me. Yeah. So, I mean, a little more about that. I was raised Mormon and so I come from a big family, which is pretty common in Mormon families. And um, I, I have six siblings and I, I was the first son and the second oldest. So, I mean, I think that plays a huge role in 
so much of my life. And I think there's like, I have sort of like a caretaker personality, which I'm sure can be traced back to being the oldest brother and the older brother to many siblings. And then I, I think that um, learning how to like collaborate and cooperate and fit into this big group of, obviously when we were young, it was just mania. And so, you know, learning those sort of life skills, I think has helped me in my life in way more ways than I can even address right now. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the mania in more detail. I mean, what was an average, like once the seventh kid came along one, what's the age gap between you and the youngest and what is an average dinner at your family? Like when, you know, all of you are at the table. Yeah. So I mean, (laughs) mania. Well, so the oldest, let's see, let me figure out the range here. Um, I think it's about a 12, 13 year range. So we're pretty close in age, like, you know, year and a half, two years and dinner. So it's a very, um, traditional family. We, we had dinner together as a family, like at the dinner table as much as possible. And, and in my memory, like, you know, in my youth, this happened pretty much daily. And I mean, I, I remember feeling like this feeling of like, I needed to eat, like get as much food as I could so that I could like be full and not that we couldn't afford to have food or something. It was like, there were so many people and so much going on that it was kind of like this, I had this sort of hoarder mentality about food. And and then the other side of that is I remember we had this dining room table uh, and it had these drawers in either end of it. And you could access the drawer if you reached underneath the table from the side. Let me see if I'm painting this picture clearly. So if you're sitting at the head or, you know, at either end of the table, you have a drawer in front of you. But if you're sitting along either of the sides of the table, you could like, if you don't want to eat your broccoli or something, you could actually slip the broccoli underneath the table and up into the back end of this drawer. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I hope that's clear. So I remember there always being food like stashed in that door because one of us you know obviously would like not want to eat the broccoli or the peas or whatever it was and be slipping the food in while someone else was you know having a conversation and then the other thing that that just popped in my head I totally forgot about this my dad is a little bit stern um, god bless him and he he had this um, habit of kind of like flicking he would do this like finger flick on the elbow so if you had your elbows at the table which is against the rules you get your elbow flicked and he would reach down across the table and flick anyone's elbow when they had him on the table. I think I got my elbows flicked plenty of times. <laughs> so this is a, a, another question related to the family. <laughs> Which of the siblings are you closest to and why? So I am closest to her name is Laura and she is number four and we both live in New York. So we, you know, in our adult life, we have, we've been here together, just the two of us, you know, for 15 years basically. And so I think that is the primary reason why we're so close, but we have a lot in common. She's a filmmaker. She's very creative. And, you know, we, we see eye to eye on many things, including some of like the family gossip, which does not, you know, it, it never ends. Yeah. So 
You know, I, I have so many questions about the experience of growing up Mormon because, you know, obviously not growing up Mormon, my entire perception of Mormons is based on what I've learned through pop culture, um, yeah. which, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I don't know if you've ever seen it. There's a South Park episode where yes. a Mormon kid moves to town. And, you know, and the thing is, like, it, the funny thing is they did a really good job because their stereotype was actually incredibly positive. Like, yeah. even though they made fun of them, the stereotype was like, these are the nicest people in the world. And I can tell you, from you know my experience of being at Pepperdine, some of the nicest guys in my business school class were were Mormon. So, I mean, what do you think that from you know the outside you know we misunderstand? And, and I'm curious, do you still um, you know are you are you still Mormon by you know faith, or is that just something that gets abandoned with age? Um, you know, and and how does that end up affecting your own values and choices that you make in your life later on? Well, I mean, it's such an interesting topic. I, I think the South Park thing is so oddly accurate and. Like, <laughs> you know, and also really funny and really positive. I, I think we can kind of separate it into two, into two, two parts. One part is, you know, the pop culture depiction of the doctrine, you know, that like that the nuts and bolts of Mormonism can, can be kind of negative and can be kind of skewed sometimes. And then the pop culture, you know, uh, outlook on the Mormon culture is that Mormons are super nice and they walk around in pairs of two and like knock on your door and they're really friendly. And those things are also really I think pretty accurate and, and positive. So, um, I, I think that this, you know, this culture, the, well, let me back up to say that the doctrine and, you know, the rules and the nuts and bolts of Mormonism are no longer a big part of my life. I've kind of walked away from it. And, um, but however, the, the culture, uh, and some of the basic fundamental principles that are found in many religions are still a big part of my life. And, I, and they're actually a big part of my practice and my work and my artwork. Um, and I, I don't think that's necessarily a deliberate thing. Like, I don't think, you know, Mormons would say, be kind. So I'm going to do art that is about kindness. I think it's just kind of in me and it comes out yeah. when, I'm, when I'm working. So. I wonder when you actually no longer practice or, you know, go to church or do any of these things, because I have seen it happen before. Like, I think the story that comes to mind, oddly enough, is one about this Mormon girl who ended up becoming a porn star. And I was like, yeah. that is so bizarre that I'm like, I need to interview this girl because I just want to hear that story. But right. uh, how does it, you know, when, when some, because I know that it seems like in some cases it basically tears the family apart, whereas in others it doesn't. So, you know, what happens to family dynamics when you say, okay, you know what, like, you know, I'm going to maintain the values, but the doctrine is no longer going to be something that I make part of my life. Well, for me and for my family, it, it hasn't been a problem. And actually there's, of the, of the whole family, the, the whole immediate family, there's only one person left who's really kind of practicing. And that's my oldest sister. And even my parents have, you know, have since kind of found there are, you know, a revised version of the path. And, you know, in, since we've all become adults, my parents have kind of walked away and, and the, the relationships have, have remained intact and, and been just fine. I mean, that's not to say that I didn't have to kind of rebel to get here. You know, it was an evolution. It's not like one day you say, Hey mom, dad, guess what? I'm not going to church. Yeah. Like it, it slowly kind of happens. And during that process, there is friction. And for me, it, this was when I was younger, you know, like, 18, 19, 20 into my adult life, I started discovering my own path and moving to New York and everything was a big part of that for me. But as I kind of found my own way, I had to rebel against a lot of things in order to get here and in order to, you know, figure out my, my own point of view, my own belief set and all those things. But now everything is great. I have an awesome relationship with my parents and, 
religion is is now kind of like a laughing part of it. Like we all have it, you know, under our belts, so to speak. Yeah. And so we can, we can relate, but we don't like uh-huh. go to church. We don't say prayers before dinner or anything like that anymore. Wow. So how did, uh, one, the advice that your parents gave each of you about making your way in the world change with each sibling? And also, I don't know if this is the case for you, but I feel like my sister got away with murder compared to me as the older sibling. Because I feel like in an immigrant family, the first kid is the experiment, and then they fix everything that they screwed up with you <laughs> on your your sibling. Yes, totally. Um, so... Well, I'm sorry to ask me the question. Again. Yeah, I guess, you know, two things, really, two questions, really. One is, you know, how did the one, how is the experience of, you know, each childhood different for each of you uh, in terms of the way, you know, the parents were in terms of how strict they were in terms of, you know, rules they enforced? Because like I was saying, my sister got away with murder, it seems like, because she was younger. Um, and also, how did the advice they gave you about making your way in the world change? Because I know that, you know, most parents aren't like, oh, there's nothing more I want than my son to become an artist and sign up for a life of profound uncertainty. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, it's, to your point, like the, I think the, the parenting was a, uh, a process that, that got refined by, you know, through each child, as each child came, like it was probably a new set of parenting rules for, for them. And I kind of witnessed that as I got older, I could see that like my youngest sister, for example, like her life was such a cakewalk compared to mine. And I, I felt like my, my parents, especially my dad was really hard on me. And he, he really like pushed me and drove me and wanted me to have good grades and all these things. And I saw him approach parenting in a very different way with my younger, especially youngest siblings. And so I I think that he, you know, speaking about my own um, experience with, with my parents, they pushed me and and they wanted me to grow up and have, some stability and have a good job and raise a family and all these things. And so when I went to college, um, I went to BYU, which is a Mormon school and I studied graphic design and I always loved technology. I always loved art and I kind of was comfortable and did well with both of them. And so to me, graphic design was the solution for my interests, but also it was the solution for, you know, growing up and getting a job and having a a stable future. So I, I think that that decision was probably driven by, you know, the words of wisdom from my, from my parents, but also I think it was something that fit me. So it was, a, it actually was a great solution. And I actually don't consider myself to be so much of a graphic designer anymore. I, I feel like I'm much more of an artist, but the tools that I learned as a designer and in, you know, in college have led me here. So I think it kind of yeah. worked out, I guess, the way it was supposed to. And now yeah. my parents Sorry. are thrilled with what I'm doing. You know, they, they love uh, that, that I've kind of spun this design career into something that is so unique. And so, you know, it, everything worked out really well. Well, I, I appreciate that because I think that, you know, we have this sort of follow your passion narrative that tends to lead people down a lot of bad roads that, you know, get them nowhere. Um, but you had this practical component to it, which makes a lot of sense. But I want to ask you about one other thing. Did you actually have to do a mission? Yeah, I did. So let's talk about that because I'm always yeah. curious about this. One, what is the what is the purpose of of people going in the mission other than spreading the gospel? Because I feel like there's something greater there than that. It's got to be about you as a person too, right? Yeah, I mean that's really insightful of you to say. I mean, of course, it's like it is about spreading the gospel and growing, uh, you know, growing the the membership of the Mormon Church. But it also serves the you know the duality of it is that it serves this purpose for the individual. So for me, I'm, I went to Brazil and. I uh, spent two years 
walking around with a companion, you know, knocking on doors and saying, Hey, we're Mormons. Like we've got a message for you. And in a way it's like, you could, you know, this happens when you're 19 years old. So a 19 year old kid could go to boot camp, could join the military, could go on a study abroad, could go on a Mormon mission. I, I think what's so beneficial about it is that it plucks you out of your environment, out of your home, out of your comfort zone and forces you to go do something new and on a daily basis, it takes you so far out of your comfort zone that you have to grow. So even though for me, I came back and was like, I don't know about this Mormonism thing anymore. And to be honest with you, being a missionary and having to learn enough about it to be able to teach it kind of drove me away. Ultimately, I think the more I learned about it, the more I started to question it. But, uh-huh. you know, I, I came back, obviously, having grown up so much and changed and evolved and and um, I think those two years, like I wouldn't trade those two years for anything because I, I found myself in, you know, in such a way that I don't think I would have if I just stayed in Salt Lake City and did what other yeah. 19 year old kids were doing. So I have to ask, because I actually spent six months living in Brazil. I did a study abroad there, um, which to me, I'm just kind of imagining you walking around Brazil. <laughs> what what it was one of the most sort of uh, formative memories you have uh, from that time there, in particular, when it comes to an interaction with uh, a person about talking to them about the gospel? Well, I remember, so, you, you know, when you're a Mormon missionary, if you don't know, you always have a companion. So you always are in a, you know, in a, in a pair. And I remember my first companion was a Brazilian guy and he I don't even know if he spoke much English, but he didn't speak a word of English to me. And before going to Brazil, I had a crash course at the um, missionary training center is what it's called. And I, I spent six weeks learning the language and learning a little bit about what I was going to be teaching. So I'm with this new companion. I've been in Brazil for two weeks and we're walking around talking to people and he just wouldn't say anything. And, and so this wasn't like a specific memory. This was like two months of a memory of me just on a <laughs> daily basis being thrown into the fire, you know, by this guy. And in a way it was great because, I mean, looking back, it was great because I really learned how to speak Portuguese quickly because I had to, like there was no other solution, but at yeah. the time and in my memory, it was so brutal. And I was, I would cry myself to sleep every single night. And, you know, I, we would get home and I would be exhausted because we were walking for hours a day and here I am, pampered Salt Lake City kid. Like I didn't, I had never walked anywhere, you know. And so it, it was like it was the worst, it, the worst couple months of my life. And also, it was such a powerful two, you know, couple months of my life because I really grew. I I really learned to speak, and I like as brutal as it was, I I can't. I came out of it alive. Yeah. So I, I wonder, you know, what you learned about persuasion and communication from that experience, because I can't imagine that you don't experience a lot of people slamming doors in your face, because I can for sure tell you that when I've seen people come to my door, you know, whether they're people campaigning for a presidential candidate or trying to sell me something, I'm like, yeah, thanks. OK, I got to go. And I know because I've done door to door sales, too. So oh, yeah. what is I mean, what do you learn in terms of, of communication, persuasion and, and you know, like, because I'd imagine there are not people who are not receptive to the message who don't want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, most people don't want to hear what you have to say. So you kind of have to learn. I mean, there are there are skills that that you learn as a missionary, and they're very similar to, to the skills that one would learn if they were embarking on a, on a door-to-door salesman kind of position or something. And it's really sales. That's what it is. You know, you're you're preaching 
religion, but what you really are trying to do is uh, develop trust with somebody and offer them something that they don't have and get them to you know, buy it or take it or be interested in it. And so I learned a lot about communication. I mean, the biggest thing that, that we experienced um, with the Brazilian people was this sort of warm, welcoming, you know, like, <laughs> please come in and, and can we offer you some bread or like, a, you know, a soda or whatever, but um, not a lot of interest in not tons of interest in Mormonism yeah. <laughs> or, you know, maybe they're interested in hearing what we have to say so that they can chime in with their own Baptist, you know, views or whatever. And, <laughs> but, but no doors were slammed. I mean, very, very rarely were we rejected. We just, yeah. you know, we, we would always be invited in and we would talk and then we would try to establish the trust and, and generally speaking, people are not interested, but here and there someone is, and then you feel like you have this big triumph and they get baptized and, you know, you put a check on the box or whatever it is. So I think that the ultimate, you know, the takeaway is that what I learned was uh, how to develop relationships based on trust and based on common ground. Yeah. So what, what actually happens when you actually convert somebody? I'm just curious, like somebody who's not been a lifelong Mormon decides, hey, you know what? This sounds good. I'm going to sign up. Because, uh, you know, I remember, and then the reason this, this comes to my mind, and, and not it's a weird metaphor, I realize, but like I'd been watching this documentary on Scientology. And if you've ever seen the Scientology commercials on TV, like the first three, two minutes, every, you're looking at it, you're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds amazing. And then at the end, they say the Church of Scientology, and you're like, oh, shit. Um, so like, you know, what is it that gets somebody who has not been a lifelong Mormon to say, you know what, this is for me? Well, the biggest selling point in Brazil, um, obviously I can only speak for, for the region I was in, but the biggest selling point is that, is the idea that families can be together eternally. So in the Mormon doctrine, um, families can be, if, you know, members of the family are all baptized and are worthy, righteous, practicing Mormons, then they can all move on to the after, you know, the celestial kingdom, which is the, the place you go afterwards, and you can all be together. And so without diving too deep into the doctrine here, um, the, the point is you can, you know, you can knock on someone's door and offer them, hey, do you love your family? Oh, you do? Okay, cool. Well, listen to this. You can be with them after you die. How does that sound? And no one's, no one's going to be like, no, that's stupid. You know, everyone's like, oh yeah, that's, that sounds great. Tell me more. So that's kind yeah. of, a, that's kind of your in. Um, and I, I don't know if that is what the missionaries are doing everywhere. That's what we did. Mm -hmm. okay. But it kind of makes wow. sense, you know, for, especially for yeah. Latin culture. I mean, it, it, for, for most people, that is a good sell. Yeah. Did, did all of your siblings have to do this? No. So um, it's, it's sort of required of, the, the men and it's, okay. um, it's welcomed if the women want to do it. But if it, and by required, I mean like you, you don't like physically have to do it. it. You know, it's that if you don't do it, you will be shunned culturally. Right. Wow. All right. So walk me through, um, you know, how you get from graphic design to art at BYU to New York and, and what you're doing today. Like what's been the trajectory of that? So I, when I was in high school, I came to visit my oldest sister who went to Juilliard. And when I got to New York, I was just like blown away. It was this magnetic experience that I felt like the city was like calling my name, like I belong here. 
and I will do anything and everything to get here. And that's that. just a weekend here kind of left me with that feeling. And so I went back. That was when I was a senior in high school. So then I went back to Salt Lake. Then, you know, I had to go on a Borman mission. And then I ended up at BYU. And I was studying graphic design. And all the paths were kind of pointing to New York. And graphic design at BYU was big, you know, as part of that trajectory because the design program and, and the professors at BYU who teach graphic design have a lot of network and connections in New York. So I saw that as sort of a stepping stone. I knew that they would be able to help me to find employment once I got to New York, since that was my ultimate goal. And so then, and, and it did, they did help. You know, I got placed in an internship. I came to New York for a summer and I worked at this little design studio and it was like the best summer of my life, of course. And then went back and finished school and then came to New York looking for a full-time job. And I got a job with Mac Cosmetics. And the reason I got the job is because there was a couple of other guys who had gone to my same school and program who were already working at Mac. So that was kind of a shoe-in. I mean, obviously the creative director liked my work and so they wanted to hire me, but you know how it is. You get a job because you often get a job because you know someone there. And so that, that was my story as well. And so that kind of brings me right up to like the beginning of my adult life in New York. And one of the, one of the big draws to New York for me was this, this feeling of freedom and liberation. And, and I, I, I didn't have that at all in Salt Lake city, both because of the the city and the, the Mormon culture. And when I got to New York, I felt this, like, I can be what I want to be. I can look however I want to look. I can do what I want to do. And it's all fine. It's all great. And, and New York does that for me. You know, New York has that sort of magic. And so I, I felt like I could just do whatever I wanted to do and be, be you know, what I wanted to be. And that was kind of the beginning of my, my adult life and my creative career. And that's now that's 15 years ago. So here wow. we are. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So, you know, I, I always wonder about this because, uh, you know, something I, I notice with a lot of people I interview is there's a sort of, they fall into two camps. Either they find this thing very early in their life or they miss the boat on it and somehow rediscover it later. So why do you think it is that you at such a young age had the foresight to see that this is where you wanted to go and this is where you want to end up? I, I mean, I'm not sure why. I, I think going back to that feeling of liberation, that was so big for me. And I, I don't know that I understood it at the time. It, you know, in my youth, I don't know that I felt that I could have told you that I felt restrained or caged. But looking back, that's exactly what I felt. And it was a result of the the combination of the city, the, you know, the, the place that I grew up in, my family at the time, the way that, that we kind of operated, the religion, you know, all these things had kind of built this box. And and to me, everyone in Salt Lake looked the same. We all dressed the same. Everyone was the same. We're all white. Like it just it just felt like this, I don't want to say like prison because that's so dramatic, but it it it, it didn't feel like it was the most free, liberated place. And when I discovered that that's what exactly what New York was, to me, it just was, it was this like, it, it, no brainer. Like it, there wasn't, it wasn't even a decision. It was just, that's, that's what, it, that was my next step. It was already decided, it felt like. Wow. Well, let's, let's get into the ideas in the book, because um, like I said, I think that what I loved about this was you sort of dissected the psychology of color, but then you talked about how to, apply it to our lives. And, you know, you open the book by saying, to me, color represents individuality, confidence, boldness, and kindness. I've developed a very recognizable style in my use of color, and color has become a central part of my reputation in the creative community. Color enables me to distinguish myself visually as an artist, and it enhances my messages and themes. What prompted this exploration of color? Like, what is it that made you want to write this book of all the books you could write? Well, I, I began to use color in my work more and more 
at the same time that I began introducing messaging and this sort of concept of positivity and kindness. And I think they kind of went hand in hand. And the more that I, that I used messages in my work and, and the more that I wanted to write and say positive things or uplifting things in my work, the more I realized that I couldn't actually visualize those statements or those messages without a lot of color. So I think the color, it was never like a conscious thing. Like I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do more with color. or I'm going to start studying color. It's that I just sort of found myself using more and more color because it felt right for the messaging that I was trying to get out there. And, and then as, you know, as time passed working with color, I, I, I think I, color is very comfortable and natural for me, like using a lot of colors, understanding the color wheel. It's all very intuitive to me. But as I began to use more and more color, I started to read a little bit about it. And, and especially once I started thinking about the idea of creating this book, I started researching color and I realized how big of a role that color theory and color and the psychology of color play in my work and in, I mean, in, in, in people's lives and in life in general. So I, I kind of became more and more fascinated with it. And the more that I felt good with it, the more that I used it, the more that I understood it, the more it made sense with my messages and it kind of became a cycle. Hmm. Well, let, let's talk about the psychology of this, because I, I'm really fascinated by how different colors impact, um, you know, sort of the way we feel. I mean, you've been to our website, you know, obviously that, it, you know, I'm, I'm big on this as well. Although my, my roommates joke that my primary colors are black and red and everything that I get seems to fall <laughs> into that category. They're like, yeah. you realize that every single, you know, if you buy a water bottle, it has unmistakable colors. If you buy a pair of shoes, it has unmistakable colors. They're, I was like, Dude, this is what Jay-Z would call an empire state of mind. You should be a walking <laughs> yes. advertisement for your work. Um, Very well put, yes. All joking aside, like, you know, what what is the, like, if we look at, you know, a few different examples, like, how does it actually impact us? And then we'll get into some of the, the actual practical application, because I really love the examples you included. Well, it, it has, I mean, the color has such an impact, and it's often one that we don't realize. But, like, a really good one to bring up is the, the color palettes found in fast food. And if you think about your favorite fast food restaurant, if you even have one, it's yellow, it's red, it's like maybe some orange, but it's pretty commonly, you know, in that color palette. And the, so if, you know, if you read about the psychology of color, you learn that studies show that seeing the color yellow actually triggers your body to feel hunger. And um, the, the combination of yellow and red speaks to the foods that are found in, in fast food. And so it's, it's not just arbitrary, you know, and it's not just marketing and advertising. It's they're, they're, the psychology behind it is that you're trying to sell a product. You're trying to make people hungry with your advertising and you want them to, to buy the product. You're going to use the color that makes people feel hungry, obviously. And so that's why, you know, when you're driving down the street and you see the yellow arches, that, that that's, that's why it's there. That's why it's yellow. And of course, then it, it goes even deeper than that, that like the fries are actually yellow. And at one point there was coloring added to make them more yellow and all these things. Right. And so it's all, the point of it is of course to drive you to buy the food and eat it. But it's interesting to know that it, it wasn't just like a couple of designers thinking that yellow was cool. It's, it's, there's some science behind it. And I think that's so interesting and fascinating, but on the other hand, like when you, when you read more about it, you learn that there's a lot of conflicting information about the psychology of color. And that's what I start to tease mm -hmm. in my book a little bit, is that not all information about color and the meaning and the psychology is the same. 
you know, they don't, they don't all agree. Yeah. What about clothing? This is fascinating to me because I feel like I don't know what it is. Like I, I, I might have read this somewhere, but I feel like if you see a woman in a red dress walk into a room, it's inevitable that she'll be the person that you notice. Like I feel like, especially if she's really attractive, it's like, oh, everybody in the room is invisible compared to her. Yeah, and it, I mean, bright and saturated colors trigger the brain. So it's it's not even like a sexual or a passion thing. It's that the, the brightness and the saturation of the red actually lights up the brain more than the other colors do. And then also the um, the, the bright colors they have a, have the ability to to ignite your short term memory. Whereas interestingly, muted colors will will remain in the long term memory longer. So you know, the, the woman in the red dress is kind of like, there's all these uh, neurological things happening in your brain because of the red dress. And, and culturally we've decided that that is like a sexual or a love or a romantic thing. But at the same time, it's a very neurological thing that's happening. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in the, in the interest of being using this for, for selfish means, let's say I'm going out on a date, I'm dark skinned. Uh, what is the, the ideal color combo for me to use in my clothing? to look the most attractive that I could possibly look? Well, I think, I mean, that, that depends on the, the impact that you want to make. Like if it's about a first impression, then you have to, you have to reconcile a combination of a color that makes a first impression, a good first impression on its own, which is going to be a bright color. But then you have to find a color that complements the, the value and the tone of your skin. And so, you know, I, without, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to feel like I'm consulting on what you should wear on your, you know, on your first date. Or yeah, anything. I'm just but asking for the sake like of an a, example. Yeah, maybe like a nice kind of leaning towards bright blue would be good for you. Okay, interesting. Because I've noticed like there, there are certain people who there are certain people who can wear a purple suit and they look amazing in it. And then there are other people who would wear a purple suit and they look like idiots in it. Totally. And I think that that has to do a lot with your, your presence, you know, your swagger, let's call it like, you know, a purple suit, even, even if it complements your, your skin tone nicely, if you're not the type of personality that can convince other people that what they're seeing makes sense, then it, that it, you know, it may not work for you. And yeah. so I, it's not, I think there's, there's more to those, especially in fashion, there's more to it than just the color. There's so many other psychological factors in, in what, what color works. But ultimately, like, you know, um, is it Coco Chanel who would say the, the right color for you is the one that makes you feel right or whatever. But the point is, um, the, you know, it's not, it's not the inherent qualities of the color that make it work. It's, it's your qualities that make it work. Mm. All right. Well, let, let's talk about uh, space design, because I know you talk a bit about this in the book. Now, that's funny because we had uh, Ingrid Fettel Lee here who wrote a book called mm. Joyful, uh, which, yeah. you know, she talks a lot about this. And as well, she has almost an entire chapter dedicated to this. And one of the things that, you know, uh, and you even mentioned this is colorizing the bookshelf. I did this. It looked amazing. And I could never find any of my damn books. It was <laughs> such a pain in the ass. I was like, all right. It looked it, literally she was like, yeah, it's like this great art installation inside of your house. And then I realized anytime I was looking for a book, unless I remembered exactly what color the cover was, it was impossible to find. So I had to ditch that. But yeah. I mean, let's let's talk about this in the context of, of, you know, a space in which you're working or living like a bedroom or, um, you know, even your, your living room. Yeah. Well, I love that you did that, first of all. I mean, that's so funny. And I think the exercise is it makes for such a great illustration, you know, organizing your books by color. It And I have my... I have my books organized by color, but let me just 
um, throw this. Let me just um, justify it. That all the books that I have that are organized by color are art books. So it's a little <laughs> bit different than, than trying to find going through your library and trying to find a book where alphabetical order would make much more sense, you know. But anyway, um, the the this you know the color in your space. I mean, it, it's it, it's interesting that like you need to have variety and in the in your stimulation, you know, like visually we can't just look at a white wall all day. And so introducing color into the, the living room or in, into the kitchen or any room that you're in is going to provide stimulation for your brain. And that actually is important to keeping you sane, keeping you happy, you know, keeping you, your spirits up. Um, so, so I argue that it, it's an extremely you know, important thing to do, but I, I think it also it depends on like how visual of a person you are. Like some people are auditory learners. Some people are visual learners. And like for me, I'm a very visual learner. Like if you say, if you tell me directions, you know, how to get to the grocery store or whatever, I won't remember it at all. But if you just show me, even if it's just written down, if you wrote down the five steps and you show it to me, I'll totally remember it because that's the way I learn. That's, that's the way my brain works. So for me, the having things organized by color actually makes sense. And it's funny that like, even I organized all the apps on my phone by, by color. And so I have a folder for each color and mm-hmm. except for, for the main ones, you know, I've got like messages and Instagram and everything. They're just on my, my, the first like panel of my phone. But then if you swipe, then I've got everything else by color. And this is sort of like bizarre, but it's actually way easier to remember the color of the app than I thought it would be. And so I find myself able to like, remember which one is in which, you know, color folder category because I can remember what the app design looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember seeing that thinking, I was like, oh, that looks cool. I want to do that to my phone. <laughs> um, and now I realize how you, I was thinking, I was like, how do you actually do that? And then I realized, I was like, oh, simple. You basically move ones that are the same color together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a pain in the ass. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Uh, I trust me, the bookshelf thing, I have like a thousand books. So you might imagine it was a nightmare. To yes. do that with a book. Oh my God, yeah. If you have like 20 cool looking art books, then do it. Yeah. Uh, so I had to ask you about the balloons because uh, the balloons in particular struck me because as a kid, my parents you know, told me if they took me grocery shopping, they're like, I was really well behaved. And the only thing that they ever had to do to keep me quiet was basically when we went to the checkout counter, buy some balloons. And um, that was it. Like I had always had this sort of fascination with balloons. So when I saw that, I was like, that's interesting. So what's the deal with the balloons? Like why, what is, what's behind that? Cause you know, you say balloons are usually colorful and they're always exciting. Find the nearest pharmacy or dollar store and get some helium filled balloons <laughs> and then cruise the neighborhood to find interesting places to tie them to and don't settle for the obvious ones. And you have a picture of a police car with a balloon tied to it. <laughs> Um, so I just, I had to ask you about this. Cause like that just struck me as, Oh wow, that sounds really fun and kind of nutty. <laughs> totally. I mean, part of it, you know, some of the, some of the pages of this book are meant to be kind of bizarre and quirky and, you know, almost silly. And I don't actually suggest that you go buy red and blue balloons and tie them to a cop car. I mean, I think that could potentially result in something you don't want to have to deal with. You know, like I don't want to be sitting in the court, like talking to the judge. This judge is looking down at you like, well, what's up with the balloons? And you're like, well, I saw it in a book, you know? So I, I don't know that that's the best thing to do, literally. But the idea is that balloons are, are this like childlike, you know, fun thing from our youth that when you, you know, if you're an adult and you're holding a helium balloon in your hand, you cannot help but be thrown back to some memory from when you were young. And, and that's where the joy lives. And um, it's interesting that you had Ingrid on and, and from 
the aesthetics of joy. Like she, one of my big inspirations for for the book was her her um, podcast. Listen to me, her TED talk uh, about joy and and color. And um, it's interesting that she points out that one of the sources, uh, one of the big sources of joy is colorful things found in multiples and balloons fits that category perfectly. You often see balloons in multiple colors in, in a bunch, you know, and it's a joyful experience partly because of the surprise, which I love. Uh, and partly because the, the multiple colors and the memories and everything. So the point of that page in the book was to, to kind of say like, you know, bring back this nostalgia, bring back these great feelings from your youth by getting some helium balloons and, and then do something funny with them, you know, like do something surprising with them. And, and that's why I drew the picture of the cop car. Cause I, I, I thought like, what, what an interesting surprise that would be to the, to like, especially like a parking enforcement officer, you know, they come back to their car and there's this big like batch of helium balloons. Like, and in my, in my conception, it's like, we're talking about like 50 balloons, like this massive, like that bunch of balloons <laughs> just like tied to the car. And, and if, you know, like if we captured this on video and the guy comes back and he's been writing tickets and I mean, God bless him. I'm sure he doesn't love his job half the time or whatever. Right. He gets back to his car and he's like, God damn it. What happened to my car? And it's just covered in balloons. Like that, that video is like TikTok gold right there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, so the other thing you, you mentioned, uh, you, you talk about this idea of painting a rock, which I thought was really fascinating, because even as I was reading this, you know, we were about to get a coffee table, and I'm sure my roommates would go ape shit if we did this, because I was like this close to buying. I'm like, huh. I am like, I think if we get this, maybe I'll spray paint it red. <laughs> I'm sure yeah, they're like, no, you're not going to spray paint the damn thing red. I was like red with black legs. Again, yeah. walking advertisement for unmistakable. Um, totally. But what uh, what's the deal with the rock? Like that was kind of one of those interesting things. Because um, and also like, what is the impact that you've noticed uh, in your own work? Because I know I've seen you know photographs of your work in in actual public spaces. Uh, and it's like, what impact does that have on people when they see this much color in a public space? Well, to to, to answer the question about the rock, I mean that's that's a, a pretty standard activity for a kid. You know, paint a, find a rock and paint it, and a lot of the activities that I suggest in the book are related to things that I did in my youth or that kids do like in art class or whatever. And, and they're activities that kind of pull you away from this, like the, this rigid adult life that we build for ourselves. And, um, they, they bring out creativity. And, and to me, that brings out joy. You know, you're doing something inventive or even something different than you regularly do every day. And you're going to, that, that day might be a little bit better than the others, you know, just because you broke out of your comfort zone a little bit. So the rock is just another one of those things. I happen to be kind of fascinated with, <clears throat> with river rocks and river rocks are so smooth and like nice to the touch and this beautiful tactile kind of thing that you can hold. Um, so the idea of painting a, a really nice, smooth rock, it sounds really glorious to me. And I love to spray paint things in general. You know, I, in my studio, I have a bunch of stuff that I've just painted with gradients just because it looks cool. But anyway, that's the rock story. But um, the impact of having, you know, colorful, bright colored murals and walls, I think is, is really massive. And I learned, at, you know, the more and more that I painted murals, and I've been doing it for about 10 years now, I, I learned that the impact is even greater than I thought. And social media helped me to understand that, you know, I, I painted, I painted murals on, on a street corner, and then I, I've been able to gauge like you know for lack of a better way to say it i, I can gauge the performance of the mural based on how many people 
walk by it, take photos, tag, repost, do selfies, you know? And so I, I think that the color plays a big role in that. You know, you could put, you could do a, a spectacular, like photorealistic portrait of, you know, anyone like Jay-Z on the, on a street corner and people who like Jay-Z will like that piece of, will like that mural. They'll like that piece of art and people who are impressed by the skills of being able to paint that they'll like that. But in my experience, putting a, a colorful message on the street impacts a much greater audience because they, the color lures them in and then a, the positivity in the message resonates with them and they take it with them. And I've found that to be true. And, and that's, that's what I love. That's what I think is so magical and powerful about putting colorful things on the street like that. Yeah. So I, I have to ask as somebody who struggles to even draw stick figures and, you know, I, I did this 30 day drawing project where I tried to, to learn how to draw. And I started with a picture of an apple and ended with a picture of Steve Jobs, ironically. <laughs> um, Love it. But what was weird is, you know, even though my drawing, you know, only improved substantially that 30 days completely shaped how we ended up branding unmistakable creative because I started to see in a way I couldn't before. Um, but I, I wonder when you do something as complex as a mural, just as, as somebody who primarily has worked on things like books and podcasts and, and, you know, multimedia, what does the process look like, you know, like, you know, from start to finish, like, and, and, you know, what is the skill building process? I I'd, I'd imagine it's, it's mastery at work, just like any other art form, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it, it is something that like everything else takes practice and planning um, the, the biggest challenge in painting a mural, and especially if, you, if this is, if you're already an artist, you're already doing paintings, you already are comfortable with, to, with the tools, your biggest challenge is going to be scaling up and figuring out how to go from size A to size, you know, X or whatever is, is that's the challenge. And that's what takes the time and the work and the planning. And there are some techniques which can be learned and used the easiest technique is obviously to get a projector and to project your art onto the wall. That way you can control the exact proportions and scale. And then you climb up there on the ladder and trace the outline of your art. And, and I do that a lot when I can, it's logistically projectors can be difficult because you've got to figure out where to plug it in, you know, depending on where you are, like if you're on the streets in Manhattan, you may not be able to back your projector up far enough to actually match the size of your canvas. You know, there, there's some logistical, uh, challenge that you have to overcome in order to use the projector. So there are other ways to go about getting your art scaled up onto the wall, but those are all things that, you, you know, you can learn and you can practice. And as you master those things, you develop the confidence to take your art and, and make it bigger. And the, I think yeah. for people who like to do murals, they'll probably say the same thing. And this is how I feel like the bigger you go, the more rewarding it is. Mm, wow. So I, I have to ask you know, one more question about logistics because I've had a handful of graffiti artists here. Um, and I remember like I was about to go to a, a place in San Diego. They had this like little place where you could go where they had graffiti artists and just walls where they would teach you how to do graffiti because, you know, obviously your public spaces for the most part, you can't just go and start uh, painting murals on them. So right. I, I wonder like logistically in terms of negotiating with law enforcement, all that kind of shit, mm. um, how does this work? And, and I know that there's some amazing graffiti art that's probably not there legally. Yeah. I mean, so I, I consider myself a muralist. I, I don't call myself a graffiti artist and that's primarily because the work that I do isn't stylistically is not graffiti. And 
So huge shout out to all the graffiti artists out there who I think have like paved the way for, for muralists like me to come in and do this. But having said that, um, for, for a muralist, for someone like me, generally the process is starts, uh, the process starts with finding the owner of the property. And so that can be very difficult, but in New York, and this contributes to the, you know, the prevalence of street art here, uh, you can usually paint on the property um, if the tenant gives you permission because the, the like a ground level, you know, a bodega or a bar or a restaurant, the, the ground level of the building is usually part of the lease um, for, you know, for the tenant and for, it could be for signage purposes or whatever. But what that means is if you see a, a, a wall that doesn't have anything on it, you know, just like a ugly brick wall, which there are tons of in New York. And the, the, around the corner from that wall is a bodega. You can just walk in and be like, hey, can I speak to the manager? And then you, this is what I do. I'll pull up my iPad. I'll say, hey, I'm a muralist. I'm looking to paint a mural on your wall. I think this is a great wall. And I think that it would help your business because, first of all, it could help you with all the, the tagging that's on it or whatever. Or it could help drive customers into your store because I'll put something colorful and happy and people walk by and see it. And then they'll come in and buy a water or whatever. So it, we all win. So that, that would be an approach to, to get permission to paint the wall. Uh, and usually if there's nothing on the wall or there isn't some other reason why they can't do it, they'll say yes. And that's how I go about getting my walls. But uh, there's also um, people that are using murals and street art for advertising and marketing. And that's kind of where a lot of my work actually comes in because of my design background. I end up doing a lot of marketing work and doing marketing and advertising is very comfortable for me. So I'm able to translate my artwork that, that goes onto the street into a format that, that serves you know, the needs of my clients. And generally those walls are either curated or rented um, for the purpose of, of uh, actual advertising. Wow. It's funny. I was just thinking as you we were saying that, I'm like, oh, if I ever have, you know, a big enough company with employees where I have to be at an office every day, I'm going to have you come and paint the outside of it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And those, a lot of my clients are, are people like you who just want to add some color to their life. And yeah. they've either got an I'm like, hey, if we're going to, you know, or... we call our company Unmistakable Creative. So it should be the most unmistakable building on the street if we happen to have <laughs> exactly. a physical location. Yep. Totally. Wow. Well, this has been incredible, man. I have so enjoyed talking to you. It's been funny, insightful, thought-provoking. Uh, so I want to finish with one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, I think that the answer is individual. It's personal. You know, what makes me unmistakable is going to be very different than what makes you unmistakable. But I think what drives it is uh, honest, you know, being honest with yourself, being honest with who you are and being authentic to who you are. And that's really easy to say, you know, but I give that advice a lot, which is like, be yourself. And it's so hard. It's, you know, it's, it's hard to actually do, but finding that, you know, tuning that and understanding, being honest with what you like, what you are, what, what lights your fire and then behaving in a way that goes with it and acting in a way that goes with it. But that's when you've got that tuned, then you become unmistakable. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, sharing your story and, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, um, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Well, thanks for having me. I mean, this was great. I, I loved that our conversation, you know, went went up and down and, and all over the place. It, it was wonderful. It was nice to be able to talk about a couple of things from my past unrelated to the book. Uh, so thanks, man. 
And on that note, uh, the book can be found at livelifecolorfully.com. And I am most easily found on Instagram at Jason Naylor, J-A-S-O-N-N-A-Y-L-O-R. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. 
Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.